to Digital Hospitality. I am your host, Sean Walchef. This is a Cali BBQ Media production. First of all, I want to thank all of our loyal listeners that have listened to this podcast, that have subscribed. Um, it has been an incredible journey going from 100 episodes of Behind the Smoke now to coming up on another 50 episodes on top of Digital Hospitality. Uh, the uh, guests that we've had on, we've been so fortunate to have people from so many different industries, restaurant industry, entrepreneurs, people from media, sports entertainment executives, uh, personalities, just the fact that a barbecue media company, a, a single unit barbecue restaurant can reach out and develop relationships with people that not only are beneficial to me personally, selfishly, but also beneficial to you. Um, and when you send me an email, when you send me a tweet, when you send me a DM, it really does mean the world because something resonated with you. And if something resonated with you, hopefully you use that information that um, impacts you, your per your personal life or your business life or whatever you have dreamed. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, Digital Hospitality, our thesis is every business needs to be digital and every business needs to be in the hospitality business. So typically if you're an offline business, um, you are not focused on digital and our argument is that you should be. That's why we do this podcast to talk to the greatest people and greatest minds that are doing that. And if you're in the tech business, you need to be in the hospitality business. Um, that's something that as a restaurant owner, we take to heart. And that's something that we're trying to do with technology um, as the world is changing. Uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different this week. I'm going to start introducing this week's guest um, with some of his own words. Uh, so this is, a, <laughs> this is a blog, a Yelp blog that our guest wrote. I'm just going to read the beginning and then I'm going to let him take it from there. But this is... Um, so this was published on, on Yelp, and it says, an honest take on work-life balance in the restaurant business. I've worked 80 to 100 hours a week for the last 20 years. I took four days off when I got married. I took five days off when my daughter was born. My top priority has always been exceeding the expectations of our guests. Meeting the expectations of my family fell below that. Meeting my own expectations for my mental, emotional, and physical well-being ranked a distant third. There, never, there was never a moment where I questioned the choice to put my career first, not one. The results spoke for themselves. I was financially stable, Michelin rated, and my restaurant ranked on every listicle out there. I was featured in L Belgium. That's how far reaching our success had become. Then when the pandemic hit a few months ago, a 20 year career went up in smoke. The five years I had put into Prue and Proper amounted to dust. The company was broke. I was unemployed and quarantined with two people and a dog that were used to me never being around. Over the course of the next two months, I learned learned three lessons that would forever change my life. Welcome to the show, Josh Kopel. <laughs> yeah, man, I got to tell you, I mean, just hearing you read it back nauseates me. It really does. It just it brings back all of the feelings uh, that arose when I wrote those words. I want to, to start the conversation there because I was on your podcast, the full comp podcast, and you and I connected on a deeper level because I think we have the same DNA. Uh, we're always curious. That's why we resonate with each other, but also that's why I'm so excited to do the podcast because the people that listen to this, they have the same DNA. I mean, let's be honest, people that are going to listen to your show or to my show, they're 
not people that follow the herd. They're people that are trying to do something different, trying to do something unique and trying to do something memorable. And the only way to do that is to continue to surround ourselves with people that have done it before and people that are willing to be vulnerable. Um, I really appreciate the fact that you talked about the personal life of a Michelin rated restaurateur. I mean, it's something that is often overlooked, um, the amount of time and effort that it takes to be an entrepreneur and the sacrifice that we have to make. Uh, tell me the thought process behind actually, it's one thing to think about those things, it's another thing to actually pub them, publish them to the World Wide Web on <laughs> Yelp um, and own those words. Uh, so I, I guess let me start with my life experience in this industry. So for me, uh, this was always a very closed off industry. I, I never considered myself a part of it. Even when pre-shifting the staff, I always discussed the fact that we were an island onto ourselves. Um, and the reason being, so many people in this industry are completely full of shit. Every, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, Everybody's no, having... right. The, Right. Everybody's having the best day, the best week, the best month in the history of their business up until the moment that they close their doors for good. Um, there was no vulnerability. There was no transparency. And I got tired of going to industry events and hearing how well everyone's doing. Yeah, because it just wasn't like, it, am I the crazy one? Am I the one that's struggling every day? Am I the one who's like underneath a toilet fixing it to save seventy five dollars? And yeah. like this guy, it's just raining money on his restaurant. I, I just, you know, it, I found that in participating in industry events felt more isolated than just sitting at home. So yeah. I just sat at home. And uh, and when this happened and I saw, you know, initially like Yelp's projecting out like a 60 percent permanent closure rate. But if we go back three months to like a 35 or 40 percent closure rate, yeah. I had this aha moment. I was like, oh, shit, it wasn't just me. Like yeah. everybody's struggling. And like this this pandemic opened the kimono on the struggles of the industry at large. And so I saw an opportunity to have a conversation. And it's the conversation that I always wanted to have, which is, man, things are really hard. How do we fix these things? But I didn't want to point at someone else and say, hey, your life is shit. Let's talk about you. So I was like, hey, I'll talk about me and the struggles yeah. that I'm going through in my life. And hopefully that is that is the conversation starter. So that was that was the inspiration for the blog, because I mean, even in and I'm not going to call him out by name because I edited it out of the podcast entirely. But one of my first guests on the show, one of my first few guests, I can remember asking him, I was like, how do you struggle with work life balance? And he goes, honestly, man, I've mastered it. And I was like, not using that. This guy's full of shit. Um, yeah. Because we all struggle with it, right? So Absolutely. I found that I couldn't ask the question without presenting my truth first. Yeah, I think that's a very powerful thing when you start to realize because work-life balance. I mean, it's it's such a loaded question, you know. Like, really, what what is that? I mean, you know, when I look and I think of myself as a father and a husband, and what does how does that relate to me as a restaurant owner? Um, me as somebody that's producing media content, that's signing media clients, what what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that I have to be on my phone 24-7? Does that mean I can put my phone down at family dinner and actually let a tweet go unanswered or let a Yelp review go unanswered? And 
those are the things that until you actually verbalize them, you don't realize, yeah, maybe that's something there, maybe there should be a, a boundary, you know, maybe there should be something. And what I found powerful was, you know, in your Instagram feed, you talked about your daughter and how you've been able to connect with her on a level that you never were able to before. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. And, and I mentioned it directly in the blog post as well. Um, what I what I always believed up until the pandemic was that my daughter was losing out on the opportunity to get to know her father, that she was losing out on, on a special relationship with me. And that was a sacrifice that I was willing to make for the professional success that I was. I was striving for and eventually achieved. But it was through the pandemic and through this forced quarantine that I realized that that she wasn't the one missing out. Her life is great every day. She's at the yeah. playground and she's hanging out with her grandparents and she's living her best life. But me, I'm the one that was missing out. She won't remember these days. Yeah. And and, and that was really the aha moment for me. That's what changed everything because that's when that's when I had to take a step back and say all right well you know this restaurant's going to reopen and so how am I going to interface with this restaurant what is my life going to look like now that I've made the commitment to work 50 hour weeks not 80 hour weeks not 100 hour weeks that I'm willing to let things slide yeah right because when the floor drains back up someone else can plunge them someone else can hydrojet those lines or the restaurant can just flood because ultimately at the end of the day, I would rather be seen as a mediocre restaurant and a world-class father than yes. be seen as a world-class restaurateur and a mediocre father. And so for me, there's been this great realignment. Yeah. For me, as a new dad, those are the things I think about a lot. And I've shared, you know, on Medium, on Facebook. I mean, I've written about the fact that I've never met my father. and. It never bothered me ever because I was raised by my grandfather and he gave me such a privileged, incredible life. But it wasn't until I had a son and I looked into his eyes and I realized, how could you possibly not want to care for another person that you brought into this world? And when you are writing your blog, it's so powerful to hear another person who's dedicated their life to the restaurant industry to share something that's so personal because we hide that stuff. We care so much about every other family that comes into our restaurant, their kids, their grandkids, their grandparents. And we want them to have such a memorable moment of the, of, of the business of the hospitality that we've created so that they go and they tell other people, but yet, we're not looking internally as, you know, how is our life and our children actually getting affected by my vision of success and my vision of how busy this business should be or how, how, how much this business should grow? Where did your ideas of success come from? I mean, they're passed down through the generations, right? It, it's, it's a very, very old industry. And so uh, I had a unique perspective in that I always knew I wanted to be in multiple tiers of dining. Uh, and, and I specialized in nightlife. So uh, I opened a bar in 2010 on Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, and once, once I believed that oh, I had received- Were you living in Hollywood when you opened that bar? Why, oh, did, yeah. you pick, why did you pick Hollywood? I saw- hole in the market. I was I was in the nightclub scene in the early 2000s, okay. running like big nightclubs. And I grew up in southern Louisiana, which, you know, Baton Rouge was more rural than metropolitan 
yes. you know, in, in the 80s and 90s. And so I grew up with those like dive bars, which we just called bars. And I loved it. And I love this idea that like you can go to a bar by yourself and not be alone. I loved I love that concept. Those were the bars I was drawn to in L.A., but there weren't that many of them and none of them did particularly well. And uh, and so when I decided to open my own place, it wasn't going to be a nightclub, even though I could have easily gotten a ton of financing to open sure. a nightclub because that's what everybody wanted. Right. I wanted a shithole bar. I wanted a bar. <laughs> I did. You know, I wanted that bar that you can go into that has the same five people that are working there every night. And yes. like you could just sit at the bar and they would host you. They knew what yeah. you drank, but they also knew what you liked. And they would introduce you to the other people sitting at the bar and create a sense of community. What Hollywood lacked at that time was a sense of community. I opened on the Walk of Fame on Hollywood Boulevard. Wow. And and I catered to residents, which is interesting, yes. right? Because well, that, I mean, would, that's yeah, that's that's typically what we don't do as restaurateurs, but really what we should do <laughs> when you focus on community and you focus on repeat business, you're focusing on things that are not transactional, but they're generational. Exactly. And so, you know, we built that out. I saw another opportunity in downtown L.A. Uh, to get into a higher tier of dining and to find dining. how much how much longer, how long down the road was the second four years, four years too soon, too soon. Too soon. How many, how, many, how many employees at the at the bar? I think I had like eight, ten, not many. Eight, Were you doing food as well? Yeah, but the food was shit. <laughs> I mean, it just was. Like I had this, I had this hundred and twenty-five square foot kitchen, and yeah. we tried. I mean, you know, here's what I can tell you about that, and I, and I think it's a valuable lesson for the folks listening because it was a valuable lesson for me. I brought in, and I could just like name drop you to death right now. I brought in some of the best chefs in LA to fix my food program there again and again and again. Bruce Kalman, $20,000 in consulting fees. Luke Reyes, $15,000 in consulting fees. Like I brought in everybody short of Anthony Bourdain to fix really? the food menu there. Yeah. And no matter how good it got, nobody cared because that's not, that's not what they look to us for. Mm. And so Rather than streamlining the menu, having three things that were like good to great, you know, I had 10 or 12 things on that rotated based off what new concept I was going to try to try and inspire people to eat. But the reality is that's not what people wanted from me. Yeah. They wanted a good time and cheap drinks and people went there to get laid and you can't eat a sandwich <laughs> and hit on someone at the same time. It's not a sexy look. Not, not a French dip sandwich. <laughs> it's not going to get it done. You don't sit there with a bowl of gumbo and be like, hey, girl, what's going on? Hey. It's not <laughs> right. And oh. so but it's you know, it's it's that desire that we have to try and be everything to everyone all the time. Yeah, because we we are we are passionate about people. That's why we get into food and beverage service. Right. Um, but what I could have done was just save myself probably a quarter million dollars um, and drop down to like one dude in the kitchen, a dishwasher for a few hours a day, pumped out like mediocre to good food and really focused on culture and, and trying to bring cocktail culture to the Hollywood market, yeah. which was really where people wanted us to be. 
So you also wrote a, a blog post about management, things that you learned now. And it's funny when you when you write a blog post or you produce content, it's a lot of reflection. And sometimes you don't have the clarity in that reflection until you actually do the act. What what did you learn along the way that allowed you not only to write the blog post, but then kind of adapt not just that business, but multiple businesses there and after? I would, I, I spend most of my career really frustrated with my team, especially like my management team. And it's because nobody was good enough. Nobody could like just jump inside my mind and then not do what I said, but do what I meant. Right. Yes, that's incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like how upsetting was that? How frustrating was that? And then there were a couple of books I picked up that like, really opened my eyes to the fact that it's not that the team needed work. It's that I needed work. It's that I wasn't, I wasn't living up to the standards that I had set for everyone else. I wasn't communicating clearly. I hadn't set up an infrastructure that clearly let people like they clearly defined what winning was, right? You're going to work for me. You're going to make this much money. This is what your day to day is going to look like. And when you're doing a good job, this is what it looks like. Yeah. Um, because you have to do that for people. And uh, and I didn't I didn't really realize that. So I spent a lot of time sitting down with people, talking shit, being like, hey, man, you know what I really need from you is this. And then they're like, well, that's not what you said last week. What you said was that. Yeah. But what I really meant was. Yeah. And and so it's this is what happens when you end up in an authoritative position in your early 20s. You know, I, I have been uh, in an operational role, in a leadership role, since I was 23 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't start trying to learn the craft of management until I was in my early 30s, mid 30s. Yeah. We'll say mid 30s. So, right. So that is there that's a solid. Was there an aha moment? Was there like pure frustration? Do you, do you remember something happening where you're like, I, it can't, it can no longer be like this. Yeah, there was a, uh, so Prue and Proper was a dry house. And for those that don't know, uh, what that means is that the staff wasn't allowed to drink on shift and that they aren't allowed to drink within on the premises. So they can be off shift having a lovely dinner with their family and they cannot have a glass of wine um, because we have invested too much time and too much money in these people to have them have just a little bit too much to drink and make a decision that we all regret. Is that what uh, it's called? Because that's what we've done. And I didn't know there was an actual term. Yeah, for it's called a dry house. A dry dry house. That's, that's all staff. That's all staff. They're not allowed to drink. Me too, bro. Yeah, exactly. I own it and I don't drink yeah. there. Yeah, because uh, that's my job, too. Yeah. And so, well, you lead by example. You do. And it's real hard to have a cocktail in your hand and then turn to someone else and say, hey, put that shit down and get back to work. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. So it was there was there was someone that worked for me who was absolutely amazing, but struggled with alcohol. And I kept I, I kept like, you know, giving her chance after chance after chance. Uh, and all I was doing was demotivating the staff, right? Because they're seeing this person 
and literally passed out in the scullery, hand boned in the middle of a shift. Yeah. And uh, and it, it's just it was demotivating for me. It was demotivating for them. And, you know, by the time I eventually let her go, I mean, it was like a bomb had gone off in the restaurant. Right. Yeah. Because this had happened so many times. And then, like, how do you enforce the rules with anyone else when you're letting this slide, even to pull her off a couple of shifts? And that's that's when I really kind of looked at myself in the mirror and said, man, Josh, you're doing a terrible job. And so I just so happened to pick up a couple of books. Uh, One was Good to Great by Jim Collins and the other was Traction by Gino Wickman. And and Good to Great really kind of highlighted for me like where I was underperforming in in the business. And, And the big aha moment there was. Uh, he preaches that you do not motivate and you do not manage your staff. They need to be able to self-manage and self-motivate. And then you just give them the tools they need to succeed. And it was this huge aha moment. I was like, oh, shit. That means like I don't have to beg anyone to show up on time yeah. or in uniform. Either they do or they lose their job. Yeah. And like, so, you know, I began to manage, not in a cruel way, certainly not in a heavy handed way. I've never been that dude. Uh, but like there were just, you know, I sat down with everyone one by one and I said, hey, I want to sit down with you personally because the rules are about to change. We're going to become a values based company. These are our core values. This is how you'll exemplify those. You are only judged by these things. Um, I will do my best to encourage you and to give you the tools you need to succeed. But you need to show up on time, ready to work, in the appropriate attire, motivated and in a great mood, um, and with a firm understanding of what what you need to do here every day to pull your weight. And these are all non-negotiables. Yeah. So would I fire you for not being enthusiastic as I've clearly defined it? Absolutely. It's not even a question. Yeah. If you have a bad day and you're capable of being enthusiastic, your priority is to pretend or to get your shift covered. Yes. Right. And if you get that shift covered, you need to do it through the system and you need to make sure that the person that is covering your shift is not pushing into overtime to cover you. Yes. You need. Right. You need, yes. You need to effectively communicate. Right. And clear. Protocol. Crystal clear without exception. I gave everyone the opportunity to quit. About 10% of the staff did. And we moved forward that way. And the rules were non-negotiable. There was no, oh, hey, man, I'm sorry. My shirt wasn't cleaner. Oh, hey, man, I'm sorry. There was a lot of traffic. There was there was no more of any of that. And it's because they clearly understood the conditions of employment. Um, and once all of that was out of the way, then we were able to focus on the good stuff, right? We were able to focus on how can we improve this place? Hey, what do you think we can be doing better? Everyone became part of the conversation. And it was it was a super exciting time because they would come to me and be like, oh, you know, what would be great is if we folded the napkins and we put them on the back of the chair. You know what? That's a great idea. Let's go ahead and implement that. Hey, you know, we have white napkins or black napkins for people. But what if we went with like a blue denim napkin that goes with that Southern vibe that we have. And if we're able to find them, then they won't, it won't put lint on people's clothes. Hey, that's a great idea. Let's go ahead and execute that. Like the staff became invested because everyone was rowing in the same direction. Yeah. How did it affect your hiring? I, I so I like to say that we had a 99.99% retention rate after the first 30 days. But within that first 30 days, a lot of people quit. 
Yeah. When you turn to a dishwasher and you say, you have to know, you'll never be in front of the house. Yeah. You have to know everything there is to know about this menu. Because God forbid you're walking across the dining room floor and somebody grabs you to ask you a question. You need to know every nuance of this menu. A lot of dishwashers will say, mm, not for me. Yeah. Same with the buzzers. Same with the food runners. Right. Yeah. Everyone needs to be able to take an order. Everyone knew how to use the POS. Everybody was able to recite the core values. Everyone knew the allergens for every dish on the menu, including that night's specials. Like those were conditions of employment because in an ideal world, that is how we would all run our businesses. I just decided to execute on it. If somebody is listening, because the, the thing that I find interesting is there's a lot of parallels to how we ran our restaurant and how we came upon our values. And a lot of the things were inherent in who I was and how I wanted to run the company, but I hadn't experienced the other edge of the sword until I realized that now this actually has to be proactively communicated as values, as our mission, as who we are as a brand and as a company and what we mean to our community. It wasn't until, you know, like I said, the other side of the knife that we realized, okay, this is, this has to change and we need to fix it. If you're speaking to somebody that hasn't done it, what would your advice be? Start now. I would pick up those two books I recommended, <laughs> Good to Great and Traction, and start now. Here's the thing, man. Like We're in the midst of this like, huge reset. So everyone that, that you know thinks that they haven't had time to work on their business as opposed to in their business, like this is, this is the great moment. And if you don't have time, make the time because it, it's not going to serve you well to go back to business as usual. One thing you don't hear on any podcast, one thing you don't hear in the media is a bunch of restaurateurs saying, hey, I can't wait for things to go back to the way they were. <laughs> and the reason you don't is because that was a shit life. So it was. So if you're going to go back, to, if you're going to work 50 hours a week, you need to have a plan to do that. And, you know, my recommendation to everyone is you start by asking better questions. I spent... 20 years of my career asking the question like, how do I get busier on a Monday? Bad question, better question. Should I be open on a Monday? Is that what, is that what my community wants from me? Because if I'm having to discount shit and then pay to advertise those discounts to convince people to come in and dine with me at a loss, is it worth doing? Yeah. You know, and, and there's so many there's so many pivots and questions like that. And I, I've said it numerous times on my own show and I know it pisses people off. But I worry that as an industry, like, are we ready to reopen? Are, yeah. are we ready to get back to work? Have we all agreed to, you know, uh, diversity and inclusion? Have we all agreed to uh, a more equitable distribution of gratuity or the elimination of it entirely? Yes. Right. It's not it's not like gratuity benefits owners and operators in any way. Right. All gratuity does is make people feel obligated and bad. Yes. I picked up a pizza the other day from uh, my local pizza place. And like the transaction was I ordered it online. I went and picked it up. The guy gave me the pizza and that was it. And like he needed me to sign the receipt and there was a place to put a tip. And there was no service involved in that transaction. Correct. But I left a tip. 
Correct. And I left a tip because I know they need it. But like what I would prefer is to know that everyone that works in that place is making 18 to 22 dollars an hour. And my pizza costs twenty nine dollars instead of twenty five. Correct. Right. I love the fact that you talk about that because I feel like that's one of one of the main components of why the full service restaurant model is broken. And particularly here in California because of the increasing minimum wage. And it's you can talk to any restaurant owner. It has nothing to do with us not wanting to pay our staff more. The economics behind the business model doesn't make sense because the people that need the actual minimum wage increase, the heart of the house are the ones that get penalized because of the increase and it's getting out to tipped employees who are typically making, I mean, I don't know what they're making in Los Angeles, but I know in, down in San Diego, it can be anywhere from 20 to $50 an hour and above, depending on- If you work for me, if you work for me as a full-time server at Pru and Proper working four to five days a week, you were making about a $65,000 a year equivalent which makes it next to impossible to hire managers, right? Right. Because well, yeah. why, why would you sh- change making $65,000 a year to making $50,000 a year and working more hours? Sure. Doesn't make Sounds sense. like we, right? Sounds like we got a lot of shit to figure out before we get back to work, right? <laughs> and and it and at the same time, I just got this in the mail. It's one of these little like coupon books. And a, re- a restaurant near me is offering 20% off online specials for takeout orders, 30% off their daily happy hour specials, Come 20% on. off an entire purchase, and 10% off lunch. Why? I don't know, man. When is this shit going to stop? When are people going to see the difference between busy and profitable and understand yes. that those are not the same thing? Those are the conversations we need to have. I like Instead of I trying agree. to figure out how to compete with Taco Tuesday, why don't we say, how do I establish enough value that I have a consistent customer base? And here's the reality. If you are busy, but not busy enough to pay your bills, maybe you chose the wrong piece of real estate to lease. Maybe you would do better in a, in a thousand square foot restaurant as opposed to a 2000 square foot restaurant. If Pru and Proper I lost a quarter million dollars my first year in business. And the reason being, I had a 6,000 square foot, two-story restaurant in a desolate part of downtown Los Angeles. And it took me two years to grow into that square footage. Now, why did I pick that place? Ego, right? (laughs) Oh my God, it's so beautiful. I need this place. Yes. People like me, I can fill 200 people every night. Yes. Um, And it just it took a long time to get there. But there are so many dynamics that are broken within the system that we all need to look at individually. Like when I think of team and I think, oh, man, I really need to work on my team. I've like expanded that worldview. And now I say, well, my vendors are part of the team. So like I want my vendors to come back to me every month and say, yo, I was able to get you price breaks on these things. You know, fuck net 15. I'm going to give you net 30. Yo, I talked to my manager and I was able to get you net 40. Um, They need to be working to improve the dynamics through which we work. Um, Your landlord needs to be a teammate. He needs to be a strategic partner. And I would never sign another lease that wasn't somehow based on performance. And what I mean by that is my rent and proper is like $22,000 a month when you include camp. It's a big nut, bro. It's a real big nut. You got to sell a lot of shit. 
That's it. That's you a lot of catfish. That is an ocean's worth <laughs> you, of. You better be open. You better be open twenty four seven. That's Don't it. Close on a holiday. You're crazy. Right, but like I just I recently approached my lawyer and I said, "Here's what I'll pay you. I'll pay you five percent, or I'll pay you five thousand dollars is base rent. Plus, I'll give you five percent in net sales. And if I can get back up to where I was before, I'll be paying you more than twenty one thousand dollars a month. Yes. But if I don't." We both eat shit on the deal because there's no world that exists. Bro, when I lost a quarter million dollars, I paid my rent on time every month. And that's just, that's not a world I want to live in anymore. Like the rent should be variable based on what I'm doing or, you know, I'll go find someone else. We are in a buyer's market and we are approaching a more aggressive opportunity for that. Please talk more about that. I think- one of the things, you know, you and I talked about when I was on your show, but I would love to hear your ideas is where where is this competitive advantage and why should people be as excited as you and I both are? Uh, for a few reasons. Uh, so let's let's just assume that the numbers are right. We're looking at a 60 percent closure rate, which you're going to see are a few different things. The first is that, uh, that there's going to be a surplus of great people on the market. So instead of panhandling and offering like a thousand dollars a week in hand jobs to a dishwasher to get them to show up <laughs> three days a week, um, you know, seriously. Correct. I know. Yeah, I, know. I, I am not above doing that. Correct. Um, but we're now going to be in a position where you're going to be able to get world class people also. Um, and this is a, a situation that's unique to Los Angeles, but a lot of the part timers, the actors, the models, the musicians, the college students that saw this as a great opportunity to make money aren't going to see it that way anymore. And so the people that, that will be applying for jobs are people that are interested in hospitality, that are passionate about the business. These are people that are interested in being like you and I, professional servants, huge opportunity to level up as a team. Second, um, with the 60% closure rate, you're going to see that not only is there less competition in the market, which should drive more traffic to you, uh, but there's also a real estate surplus. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what it looks like in San Diego, but I can tell you in Los Angeles, landlords were like booting people out and just living with vacancies for six months because they knew that they could triple and quadruple the rent eventually right. once they got a new tenant in there. And those days are done. Yes, so, they're done. They're done. And I mean, forgetting, you know, when you're looking at it, the commercial real estate landscape, restaurants, bars, the hotels that have closed, uh, the massive amounts of office space that are going to be available. Uh, there, you are you are approaching a commercial real estate bust. And what does that mean? That means you can get real innovative as a restaurant owner with how you'll structure that deal. Hey, bro. I would love to take over your space. I'm going to put a quarter million dollars into it. In exchange, I'm not going to pay you rent until the day I open. And that might be six weeks from now. That might be six months from now. But you don't make money till I make money. And that lease rate is going to be based on how much money I'm bringing in. So for the first 12 months, you're going to get 10% of my net sales. And then after that, you'll get a base rate plus 5% of my net sales, 2% of my net sales. We can get creative with the way we structure deals. We are, as an industry, more optimistic than we are savvy. 
So we don't negotiate aggressively because we know it's going to be fucking great until (laughs) it's not not, right? right. The nature, the nature of entrepreneurship is extreme optimism. The nature of becoming a restaurateur is the ability to be able to look into the abyss and say, oh, it's not that deep. Yeah. <laughs> and we're very good at doing that. We are very good at doing that. And, and so if, if we set ourselves up for success, beginning with the end in mind, we'll be in a really good place. And so those those are the opportunities as I see it. I think you're going to see less competition. I'll also say this. Uh, every trust fund baby that's decided they want to become a restaurateur with a 60% closure rate, I think they'll think twice about getting into the industry. I spent 20 years of my life cultivating a career in. Just like uh, let's assume that my parents are rich, which they're not, but it would be awesome if they were. Um Let's assume that when they pass away, they leave me a shit ton of money. I'm not going to open a medical office. I'm not going to open a law firm. Like it's crazy to think that people think just because they have the financing to do it, that they can get into a specialized industry. I think what you'll see is a much higher barrier to entry based on the failure rate. And and that in turn, I think, will, will dramatically improve the chances of an independent restaurant success. Because you're not competing with idiots doing stupid shit. I agree. And I think, you know, the real estate piece is a huge piece. And I don't think we're anywhere close to where we need to be because I'm I'm already having conversations with landlords and commercial brokers that they just do not understand what is happening. I mean, literally, they're building skyscrapers in downtown San Diego and they're putting 5000 square foot retail commercial restaurant space at the bottom of that, expecting people to come and pay whatever they think they're going to pay five dollars a square foot eight dollars whatever it is it's 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 unreasonable to think that somebody's going to come in in this climate in 2010 maybe right 2020 post-pandemic no well and and here's the conversation to be had right and and landlords understand that restaurateurs are screwed right now yes what they fail to realize is they're screwed too yes Um, and but as that becomes you know patience is a virtue not Certainly not a virtue of a restaurateur, but certainly a virtue nonetheless. Um, If we wait long enough, there will be opportunities that exist. There will be people that see the need to to transition from a uh, from from a landlord leasee relationship into a a true strategic partnership. Yeah, because they're going to be much fewer. You'll see it in 2020. You'll see it in 2021. There are far fewer entrants into the market and you're going to see almost no novice entries into the market Um, because it's not as sexy as it looks. And people are really beginning to get that. But it it all starts with the the, the choices that we make today. Yeah, I can't stress that enough. Well, it goes back to what you said before, and that's simplicity and not complication. When you simplify the process and you focus on the things that you do best, or even if you should be doing them, then a lot of things, then you're able to look at that vendor relationship, that vendor partnership. And one of the most fascinating things I see happening right now is, you know, what we're experiencing is these new incredible tech companies that are getting built, they need us just as much as we need them. Sure. We need Toast, which is why we're switching to Toast. I mean, literally today we're going to do an unboxing video for Toast because we're switching from Aloha to Toast. They're going to help us work on our digital hospitality thesis, do all the things that we want to do with barbecue. 
work with Yelp as well has been incredible. All of these DoorDash, this is, you know, third-party delivery. It's not looking at it as a necessary evil, but what if you change your, the way that you look at it and go, well, there's great people that are, assume there's great people working in the company. Assume there's shitty people working in every company, right? But what if you found the great people and you took care of the ones, like you said, if you start taking care of your food vendor, we have a relationship with U.S. Foods, we went as a primary vendor. And because we went as a primary vendor, they've had our back no matter what. You know, they've had our buck and we've had theirs as opposed to just going, oh, that's a bill. You know, fuck these guys. They're trying to screw us, which is typically how we look at bills. Right. Right. It's there. There are opportunities to cultivate these strategic partnerships everywhere. Um, The element that needs to be removed from uh, both the mindset and the conversation is fear. Um, Everything that we do is motivated by the fear of closing. And, and, you know, what I would advocate for, uh, and, and I'm a big believer in it myself, is I look at my restaurant and I say, it may or may not reopen. And if we do reopen, there's a strong possibility that we may close. Um, but all of the compromises that I've made throughout my career to ensure that we stay open, I'm not willing to make anymore. Yeah. Right. So what that means is, is that I'm not going to buy food and I'm not going to staff based off projected volume. I'm going to do it based off existing volume. Uh, What I am not going to do is, is price to be busy. I'm going to price to be profitable. And I'm going to define that clearly before I drop a menu on a table. That food, that food cost is going to incorporate uh, subsidized healthcare, retirement plans, going carbon neutral. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do everything that I always said I was going to do. I'm going to incorporate it into the price and either I stay open or I close, but the people are ultimately going to vote. But we've got to get away from this culture of who can sell the cheapest shit for the most hours in a day Um, because we're undercutting each other. And like the, the promo that I just mentioned to you, like, sure, they're screwing themselves, but they're screwing you, too. Right. Because we have, as an industry, taught people that they don't need to pay full price. Yes. We, we, we have crafted this discount culture. And the only way to eliminate that is to say the price is the price. This is what it costs. And you can come here or you, you cannot. Um, and we will go out of business or we will be profitable. And, and it's, it's one or the other. And that there's there's no problem with having that honest conversation. And we don't out of fear. There's no problem with having that honest conversation with your landlord, with your patrons, with your staff and just saying, listen, this is where we are. You can negotiate a deal with your landlord and say, listen, man, like this isn't working for me. Like I'm not making any money and I got into this to make money. So I would like the opportunity to renegotiate the lease or the working assumption should be that over the course of the next 90 to 120 days, I'm going to wind this thing down and get the fuck out of here. Yeah. But like, but it's got to be either it works and it makes money or it doesn't. What is your view on on on-premise versus off-premise? I think I think both are, are going to be critical elements moving forward. My business plan for my 6,000 square foot restaurant was that we would open, we would serve food, people would drive to the location, they would sit down, they would dine, and then they would leave. Hopefully, they would leave quickly, um, and hope, <laughs> right? And hopefully, they would tell people that they enjoyed that short period of time that they were there, uh, and that was it. But 
this what we are seeing is an expedited evolution of the industry. So it you don't you're not going to find a successful business model out there that has one revenue stream. Every yeah. successful business model has multiple revenue streams. So what do I see an opportunity for? I see an opportunity for takeout and delivery, uh, for catering, uh, for limited dine-in and eventually back to regular dine-in. But I also see an opportunity for retail and farmer's market boxes and you retailing your own sauces and apparel. And to not do all of these things is a mistake. Because once you have multiple revenue streams, you'll see the ebbs and the flows in each. But altogether, it'll culminate in, in a sustainable business model if your math is right. I definitely agree with that, and I, I would love for you. I'd love for you to talk about uh, entrepreneur organization and mentorship and working on yourself and putting yourself in positions where knowledge from others who have been there and done that um, becomes a priority in your life and therefore in your business. I'd love to. So like, for me, I, I learned in my early 30s that, that my professional success was exclusively determined by the speed at which I was able to learn new things. Uh, every year, without exception, I look back on the man I was and the things I thought, and I think to myself, man, what an idiot that guy was, you know, and this is, you know, this year is no different. I, look, I just read uh, the 22 immutable laws of marketing and the 22 immutable laws of branding over the weekend, short books, really mm -hmm. valuable information. And I turned to my wife yesterday and I was like, oh my God, I was wrong about everything <laughs> from like two days worth of reading. And so like we need to be continuously educating yourself. My goal, my priority, my dream is to always be the dumbest person in every room I walk into. Um, and, and through that, that drive, uh, to learn and, and to be mentored. Uh, I joined the Entrepreneurs Organization. It's uh, 22,000 people worldwide. And, uh, and every member of the organization has a business that top lines more than a million dollars a year. 3.4% of all businesses in the world top line more than three point, uh, top line more than a million dollars a year. Really? 3.4%? Yeah. That's incredible. Worldwide? Worldwide. Wow. That's wow, amazing. That's right. Amazing it's statistic. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so understanding that, you know, you find yourself surrounded by people that are brilliant, regardless of industry. You also find and I talk about it a lot on the show. And it's the reason that I host the people that I do on the show. There is as much to learn about the restaurant industry from the people outside of the restaurant industry yes. as there is uh, from the people within. When you have a, a show hosted by a chef that interviews chefs. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that is more entertainment than it is educational because everybody knows the same shit. Yeah, um, yes. When you host a, a thought leader that can talk to you about, you know, how to build a culture first company, uh, that is new information that you can then utilizing your own business. For too long, and I am guilty of this as well, we collectively believe that the restaurant industry was different than every other industry out there. And that, you know, what you do in the restaurant business is different than what everyone else does in business. And, you know, we don't abide by the same rules and the same rules don't apply to us. And that's not true. Um, and, and maybe that's because 
outside of great programs like Cornell University, which almost none of us have gone to, <laughs> um, uh, there's no formal education. You learn from the people that are directly above you, and they learn from the people directly above them. And so uh, it, it's not that best practices are handed down. It's that old ideologies are handed down. And how is it possible that you look at this industry and the way a full-service restaurant works and you say, it's not really that much different than when, like, Jesus went to restaurants? How <laughs> Really? Truly? <laughs> Uh, how has there been like such a lack of innovation? I mean, the biggest innovation to hit restaurants was either either you know the point of sale system, the digital point of sale system, which again that went across all industries, or open table, which basically just digitized the reservation book. Not really that snazzy of a of an innovation. And and so you know why haven't we leapfrogged? And it's because there are no new ideas, and there are no new ideas because we only talk to each other. So in having a central focus on on educating myself and mentorship from outside of the industry, I've been able to bring new ideas in because you can only read Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, so many times, bro. Correct. There are other books out there. That's a great one. Correct. But there are other books out there. Correct. Why did you start your hospitality technology company and what is it called and how can it help? Oh, so that that's a function of need. I, I built that in the same way I learned how to fix a toilet because like I needed to do it. I was looking to save money and I was like, shit, I'll just do this myself. I uh, room proper opened at 5 p.m. every day, basically since we opened. We've opened for lunch service a couple of times. I wouldn't recommend it to others. <laughs> <laughs> Just didn't it just didn't do well for us. Um, so we, we opened at 5 p.m. almost every day. And then the phones rang. And from nine to five, there was no one there to answer the phone. So we, it was either left up to me to answer the phone. Uh, we paid someone for a while to answer the phone, or no one answers the phone. And none of those are really great options because the person that we paid to answer the phone was doing two hours worth of work a day. It was just spread out across eight hours. Yes. And I mean, and you would turn to them and you would say, hey, I need you to do me a favor. While you're answering the phone, can you fold napkins until your hands bleed? But like, <laughs> what do you do when you're out of napkins? Right. So it just, it seemed like this insurmountable obstacle. I kept hiring people to do it and then firing them because I couldn't make the math work. And then eventually I was like, well, you know, what if I could hire someone and they answered the phone for me and my buddy's restaurants? And we just shared the cost of that reservationist. The, the platform didn't exist. So I got on YouTube, I learned how to code, and I built out some simple software whereby one reservationist could answer the phone for multiple restaurants without the guest knowing that they're talking to uh, a, a third party on the phone. Uh, I built out like a 75 question questionnaire. That way the reservations would know everything that they needed to know about all of our restaurants. And I called my friends and I was like, hey man, this is what I did. Will you jump on? It'll cost you this share of the total amount. And, uh, and I got three or four guys on it. And then they told people who told people who told people, cause that's the nature of the industry. And, uh, and then people started calling me and they were like, Hey man, I'd like to get on your service. And I was like, well, it's not for you, bro. It's for me. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't have it. No, um, you can't have it. 
And then, you know, eventually like the, the demand became overwhelming. So we hired on another reservationist and then another one and then another one. Uh, and then, you know, that was over a year ago and things were going really well. And then the pandemic hit and uh, it took a huge dump. Yes. Uh, but here's the bright spot. I got a shit ton of PPP money. Yes. So when I did the math, I figured out I was able to put 60 restaurants on the platform for 60 days, no strings attached. That way I can help people get open and stay open. And I don't care whether people continue on the program or not, because it's not my money. Yes. If I don't spend it, they're going to make me pay it back. So it just seemed like like a great way to help the industry while helping my team while, while, you know, hopefully building a brand. Right. Because it's not just altruistic. I want people to see the value in the service. And so uh, we just launched the 60 for 60. Um, we still have almost 30 spots left. So if anyone's interested in jumping on, they can go to justcallflow.com, F-L-O, um, and sign up. And it's like super Flo easy. Flo will answer the phone? But the, yes, Flo, she will answer the phone. Is she nice? She She's is hospitable. She is also sometimes a heat. <laughs> she is also sometimes, that's fair enough. But, you know, yes, she's hospitable because all she's doing is answering the phone. The person answering your phone today is greeting guests, seating guests, handling takeout and delivery orders. Checking masks. Right. Organizing menus. Like it's I thought I had a lot to do. But then like when I really like distilled out everything that my host was doing, I was like, well, that's a shitty job, too. Um, and the margin of error is huge, right? Because like when I walk up to a host, I want to be greeted. I don't want them to like stick their finger in my face and be like, oh, I'm on the phone. I'll get to you in a second. Because I took the time to come all the way out there. So it just, it puts people in a terrible position. Um, call volumes up almost 80%. Yeah. right now because people are afraid and they want to have a conversation and they want to know that you're not going to kill their grandmother when they come in there for dinner. Yeah. So it's a great opportunity to, to field calls, build confidence and, and rebuild the industry. And so uh, I've gotten so much joy in my life from serving my communities. Uh, but having said that, the joy that I've gotten from serving the industry is something like I've never experienced before. So I'd love to give you an opportunity to promote your podcast. Uh, one of the things for us is we always believe a rising tide lifts all ships, which is why we have other podcasters on this show. It would seem counterintuitive to promote people to go listen to other people's podcasts, but I can't do all the interviews myself and every every person's different. I mean, I've listened to your show. You had Meltzer on. You've had some incredible people on. And I've learned significantly because you're asking different questions than I would ask. Um, tell me, give our listeners an idea of, of your show and your partnership with Yelp, how it's powered the show and um, why they should subscribe. Absolutely. So uh, the, the inspiration for the show came out of seeing that when the pandemic hit, the growing sentiment was that, that the pandemic had destroyed the restaurant industry. And I just didn't see it that way. Like the way I saw it was that the, the restaurant industry by and large was on shaky ground and the pandemic was like the, the nail in the coffin. But foundationally, we weren't doing the job that we needed to do. And that was the conversation I wanted to have. Not woe is me, but like, what, what mistakes did we make? And like, how do we fix those mistakes moving forward? Because I just want to serve people. I'm tired of worrying about money. It's always every, 
you know, for people that didn't get into accounting and bookkeeping, all we ever talk about is money. Yeah. And I was just tired of it. I wanted to get back to the purity of the industry. So I wanted to have that conversation. And uh, Yelp reached out and they they were interested in, in providing a different kind of content to restaurateurs. And you know, we, we, we saw it. I, they began to sponsor it as well as uh, help distribute the podcast. And we're just having a new conversation. So, you know, if you like the way things were before and like you're into 80 to 100 hour work weeks, uh, working for free or better <laughs> yet, paying to work for free. Yeah. Yes. Um, I would strongly recommend not listening to the podcast. <laughs> uh, but if you want a better life, if you want a more sustainable life for yourself, that's the conversation we're having. It's about not making you a better restaurateur because I'm sure you're great at your fucking job. It's about making you a better human and a better business person because that's that's really where we lack is in that that holistic approach to work. And saying, I want to be a better person. I want more work-life balance. Uh, I also want to be able to balance my books. And, and I need these foundational tools to do that. And so I've had, you know, I talked about the book Traction. I've had the author of the book, Gina Wickman, on the show. But I've also had Chef Andrew Zimmern. Uh, Jet Tila is on the show today. But he's not talking about cooking. He's talking about how to transcend chefdom and become a brand. Because that's what that dude is. And it's an all-weather strategy, right? It doesn't matter whether his restaurant is open or closed. That dude's making money no matter what. So how do we all adopt those strategies? So it's, it's a different kind of conversation uh and you know you can check it out on spotify uh apple podcast and every other platform there is it's called full comp full comp because it's on the house yes sir it's not discounted it's on the house it is on the house hard lessons learned on the house that's fantastic josh i I appreciate your time man uh you are true thought leader in our industry. I know um, our paths are going to continue to cross. I know that you just moved into San Diego, which means uh, welcome to welcome to San Diego County. Hopefully we can keep you here. Uh, we, we, love, <laughs> we, love, we love it. Uh, and anyone that's listening, please, uh, please follow Josh's podcast, follow him on social. We'll put links in the show notes. Um, we'll write our own blog about his blog and his podcast. <laughs> and his experience. Uh, nonetheless, we, uh, we're grateful for the opportunity every single week. And, uh, dude, you knocked it out of the park. I really appreciate you, man. Thank you, man. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>